people are never going to understand how critical this particular time in history is. We have $7.7 trillion worth of economic events that are going to hit America in the gut. This is An Economy of One with Gary Rathbun, President and CEO of Private Wealth Consultants, the free market voice, free market voice. of the U.S., enhancing and protecting private wealth. Gary Rathbun has over 30 years of experience in making the best choices for you to keep more of what you earn. It's life, liberty, and the pursuit of self-reliance. An Economy of One with Gary Rathbun. This is our country. Greetings and welcome again to An Economy of One. I am your host, Gary Rathbun, and yes, my voice is back to normal, as normal as can be. Thanks for caring. Our website, aneconomyofone.com, aneconomyofone.com, as is our Facebook, An Economy of One on Facebook. Our toll-free number here is 844-244-3750. Toll-free from anywhere. you got a comment or question, don't hesitate to give me a call. I'll be glad to uh, chat with you and see what you think. You know, this week, we got a lot of stuff to touch on, but this week was interesting because it's the 82nd anniversary of President Franklin Delano Roosevelt through executive order confiscating everybody's gold in 1933. And I wanted to remind people of that because it's it's it, there's a lot of ripple effects uh, that are around that. But it's interesting to look back because... People often say, well, they did it once, they're gonna do, they could do it again. And I, I'll touch on that in a minute because I don't really think they could. But back then, through executive order, President Roosevelt made it against the law to hold gold coin, gold bullion, and gold certificates. Now, gold certificates are kind of outdated in the sense that it was currency, it was paper money, $5 bills, $20 bills, that kind of stuff. But at the top, it would say gold certificate. And you could take those bills to a federal bank and cash them in for gold bullion. And, you know, we've all seen silver certificates. Those are a lot of dollar bills were in circulation at one time. Very few now. It's hard to find them. Uh, in circulation, they've pretty much all been been uh, collected out. But uh, th- there were bills that said silver certificate at the top, and you could take those to a bank and cash them in for silver. Now, gold and silver at the time when Roosevelt did this, the prices were fixed. Gold was fixed at $20 an ounce. And it had been fixed at $20 an ounce for over 100 years. So it was easier to issue gold certificates, silver certificates, that kind of stuff, when you know the price of the underlying commodity, the price of the underlying metal is fixed. So President Roosevelt confiscated all this money. And you had about 30 days to go to a federal bank, Federal Reserve Bank or branch or agency of of the Federal Reserve, turn in your gold coin, gold bullion, or gold certificates, and they would exchange it for comparable fiat money 
or coin. Now, several things that are interesting around this that I, that I just want to just want to lay out there. The first was this was an executive order. Hardly a week goes by that some pundit out there isn't complaining or pointing out that President Obama is doing something by executive order that is unconstitutional. The fact is, presidents for generations have done executive orders. The other thing I wanted to point out is the executive order was based on a perceived national emergency. Remember me talking a few weeks ago about right now the United States of America has like 23, I believe, declared states of emergency. And the reason that these states of emergency keep being renewed is it gives the people in power authority at a moment's notice to suspend law, to issue executive orders like this to do things that normally would take acts of Congress and time to do. So politicians love states of emergency because if they ever want to, they ever want to break the glass on an emergency, they can. They don't have to go through the normal process. The other thing is there was criminal penalties attached to not doing this. If you got caught with gold coin or gold bullion that you were hoarding, you could face up to a $10,000 fine or 10 years in prison or both for violating this order. The other thing that's interesting is part of you in, in turning it over to the Federal Reserve or a Federal Reserve branch or agency, Federal Reserve was a private is a private organization. So FDR, under executive order, under criminal penalties, made the citizens of the United States turn over their gold coin and gold bullion, gold certificates, to a private organization. Finally, after all this was done, what did President Roosevelt do? Instead of gold being $20 an ounce, he immediately raised the price of it to $35 an ounce. So he devalued, essentially, the currency that people received in exchange for turning in the gold coin and gold bullion. Essentially devalued that by about 75% with a stroke of a pen overnight. Now, the question comes up, can and would the government do that today? Well, my answer is no. I don't think so. The United States government holds over 8,000 tons of gold. But you do the math on that, 8,000 tons, that's barely six months of our federal budget. It's nowhere near the amount of currency we have outstanding. All of our currency now is, is what we call fiat currency. There's really nothing backing it up. 
in August of 1971, President Nixon took us off the gold standard. So we essentially defaulted as a government, essentially defaulted on all our foreign debt and currency with the with regards to redeeming it in gold. We had borrowed money from around the world and we'd put our currency out there around the world with the promise that you could redeem it in the United States for gold. And when Nixon took us off that gold standard in August of 71, we essentially reneged as a nation on that promise and and our currency went full fiat. So the fact that our currency is no longer backed by gold in any sense of the 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 uh, thought process indicates to me I don't see any reason for the government to confiscate our gold and silver. Now, could they? Sure. But they wouldn't do it for economic reasons. They would do it more for control of the citizens. There's only a few states in the Union that have a um, law on their books that allows gold and silver to be used as currency in that state for the full discharge of bills, debts, and even taxes. So the, the, the government, the fact that gold and silver are not used in regular transactions anymore tells me I don't think there's any concern about the government doing what FDR did in confiscating the gold and silver and taking it out of our home. They know we got it. You know, it's all recorded. Who bought what, I'm sure. But uh, I don't see them getting involved again and uh, confiscating it. When we come back, I want to talk a little bit about margin debt. There's some, some correlations that people are putting out there that relate back to 2007-2008. And uh, we're going to take a look at that, see if it has any significance. It's an economy of one with Gary Rathbun. Back to an economy of one with Gary Rathbun. We are back. Our website is an economy of one.com, an economy of one.com, toll free, 844 244 3750. I almost forgot. Coming up, coming up in our next segment, Veronique de Rougie. She is a senior research fellow at the Mercatus Center of George Mason University. We're going to speak to her a little bit uh, about her testimony before Congress regarding uh, alternative energies, loans and grants from the federal government on alternative energy. Veronique DeRegie from the Mercatus Center. You want to stay with us for that. You know, uh, back in 1929, when the market crashed, one of the things that contributed to the market crashing back then was margin debt. Now, margin debt is defined loosely as 
using securities as collateral and borrowing money against those securities. Brokerage houses have done that since there were stocks. If you own 100 shares of something, those shares being held at the brokerage house, the brokerage house would loan you money against those shares. The regulators from time to time change what percentage you're able to borrow against those securities. So in times of economic turmoil, they might only let you borrow 20% or 30%. In times of economic boom where everything's relaxed, it might be 65, 75, 80%. Back in 1929, margin borrowing had reached, you ready? 95%. So if you had $10,000 of stocks back in 1929, you could go to your brokerage house and you could borrow $9,500 against that. And then you could reinvest that in more stocks and then use those stocks to borrow at 95%. So it, you could see where excess margin, too much borrowing against securities could cause a problem because as the market comes down, as those stocks that you've used as collateral become worth a little bit less, you get to experience a charming little event called a margin call, where the brokerage house will call you up, literally, and say, you're short on your margin percentage. You either need to sell some securities that you're using as collateral, or you need to write us a check. And you got three days to decide. Most people don't like to write a check, so they sell securities, which contributes to the downward spiral of securities, which gets you another margin call, which means you sell more securities. So you can see what happened, the cascading effect of having too much margin outstanding against stocks uh, had in 1929. And we had that in the year 2000. We had it in 2007, 2008 market crash. The market went down about 40% in 08, and that caused a lot of margin to be called. Well, the thing is, we're reaching that point again. We're reaching a point where we have a lot of money outstanding on margin. Now, the regulators have been more diligent in recent years than they were back in 1929. And they look at margin ratios very closely, and they don't hesitate to change them. Today, you can margin about 65% of the outstanding stocks that you have, depending on the brokerage um, house you do business with. If the regulators feel the economy is potentially getting worse, if they feel that the market could significantly go down, they might tighten that up and say, instead of 65, eh, we better make that maximum a 60 or 55 or 50. So they will, they will have their hand on the, the governor of that very tightly. So they're trying to 
do what they can to prevent a cascading effect like happened in 29. Now, this week, the Federal Reserve minutes came out for their March meeting, and we was able to see a little bit about what they're thinking, which gives us some insight into what's likely to happen in the stock market. Now, the notes showed us that about 50% of the Federal Reserve uh, governors were okay with raising interest rates in June. The other 50% thought, no, the economy is just not quite good enough to raise rates. We need to defer that. Now, I think that it's very likely that the Federal Reserve will not raise interest rates at least until the second half of the year, probably the last quarter to the earliest. The market does not want interest rates to go up. However, the market has already built in pretty much a fourth of a point increase in interest rates or 25 basis points. Janet Yellen has been the chairman of the Federal Reserve now for over a year. And quite honestly, she hasn't done anything. She has stayed the course. She has maintained the Bernanke policies. She wound down or tapered the rest of uh, quantitative easing that, that Bernanke had started tapering. And I really think she's looking at, um, man, I, 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 we, we need to do something. She, she, she just hasn't done anything to make her mark. So probably in the September meeting, or at the very least the December meeting, I think they're likely to bump up interest rates a little bit. It's not going to be a lot. It's not going to be uh, a surprise, surely. And uh, it's, it's likely that uh, the market will react neutral to it. Coming up, we have Veronique DeRegie. She's a senior research fellow at the Mercatus Center of George Mason University. We'll have that and more. I'm Gary Rathman. It's an economy of one. Gary Rathman, an economy of one. Now, back to An Economy of One with Gary Rathbun. Joining us now is Veronique DeRegie. She is a senior research fellow at the Mercatus Center of George Mason University. You recently uh, testified before uh, the House Committee on Science, Face, and Technology about uh, alternative energies and, and what the government's doing to uh, make loans and grants and that kind of stuff. And it's it's different than the Export-Import Bank, but yet it's kind of the the same when it comes to picking and choosing winners and losers and crony capitalism and that kind of stuff, is it not? Yes, it's exactly, you're, you're exactly right. Um, this is done domestically, but it's the same, it's exactly the same thing because these two are basically cheap loan extended to a few companies to do something that they could very well do on their own. And the consequence is that they get 
cheap capital to do something again that they could do on their own, giving them a serious edge over competitors, not only because their cost of financing is really low, but also because it tends to attract private capital right. that flies to safety, the safety of a, of a, of a program that is signal to be safe simply because of the uh, of the um, of the government guarantee you know when i was back in in college 100 years ago my economics professor and he had a great statement that has stayed with me <clears throat> my whole life and that's it the the statement is there's no end to the good do-gooders will do with other people's money and yes. when, when it comes to to government money like this i mean uh, there really isn't any incentive to create uh, any incentive to accomplish anything in any amount of time frame as long as the, the checks keep clearing. Isn't that right? Yes, it is exactly right. And uh, and again, they can. Uh, this is really what makes things really hard for us. By the way, that loan that guarantee that I testified about, that's the loan that gave us Solyndra. Right. And it would be very easy to get rid of these programs if all that it did was to extend money to losers like Solyndra's. Right. You know, all the Solyndra of the world, but that's usually not what it does. What it does is that it actually lends money to companies, again, that are very well established, that are that could have access to capital on their own. And in fact, most of their activity, they, they, they get capital without the help of the federal government. Mm -hmm. And so, like, so far in that loan, 90% of the projects are backed by really large company, including one, uh, Cogentrix, which is, which is a subsidiary to Goldman Sachs. Oh. I mean, Goldman Sachs can get capital. <laughs> they have access. They have, they access. have access. Yeah. Yeah. So it's and 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 by the way, even if they couldn't, why transfer their risk on to taxpayers? That's right. The contract cost our cost us over five hundred million dollars. Now you know, and, and Solyndra, like you said, five hundred million. Um, I think I read in in your testimony that they they uh, spent uh, what about two million or something in lobbying for that that five hundred oh, yeah. million. So that's a pretty good yeah. return on investment, isn't it? And they and they had this program had a um, well yes and no you know because here's the thing it's like even for Solyndra it's not really a good deal like you imagine what the owners of Solyndra would have done if they hadn't had access to capital mm -hmm. right it would have forced them to actually either put their money somewhere else or reconsider their business plan maybe do a better job right but now yeah. they have access to cheap capital independently of the bad merits obviously of their project so then they go you know full like they go at full speed into this unprepared and they fail i actually don't think it's doing a favor to all the people i mean there's a reason why the capital market doesn't give money to some people right right i mean it's, it's a feature of the capital market it's not a bug right right and 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 it is it is because some people should not give capital <laughs> Well, you know, and I, I didn't mean to imply it's a good investment for us. I, I meant and for the, the, the cronies. You well, know. But in, I, again, in this case, I don't think it served Solyndra well. Yeah, I, I agree. Solyndra would have probably been better being refused from the beginning. Yeah. yeah. Now you can imagine, they Mark, if you want to start another business. I mean, I actually don't quite know about credit rating for company that failed. And that is something I've, I'm not an expert in, but... It just cannot be good. Yeah. Now, you know, I, I, I'm a strong libertarian. I'm a wrong free market. 
laissez-faire capitalist, seems to me like if the market was there for alternative energies, wouldn't the market, wouldn't entrepreneurs, venture capitalists, wouldn't, wouldn't the market fill that vacuum? Yes, and in fact, there is a big green energy market. Mm-hmm. The, the, the idea that it's going to replace fossil fuel for now is, is a pipe dream. Right. It's not happening. And it's certainly not going to happen uh, by the government basically, you know, trying to force feed that market with with uh, cheap loans. Because the thing is, we actually don't know. I think there's a big demand for green energy, and and right now, so the, the, there are like three or four main ones, right? Wind, mm-hmm. uh, solar, geothermal, and uh, uh, nuclear. And uh, I'm probably forgetting other wind, wind. And these are just like the technology isn't such that you can actually really address all the problems, uh, all the needs uh, of the, the kind of needs of energy that we have. There's transportation problems. The sun doesn't shine all the time. The wind doesn't blow all the time. You still have some storage problems. There's just all these problems. But who, who, who can tell? Like then there's, a, there's yeah. I mean, I thought I thought fracking was actually um, my understanding was. A the green environmentalists used to love fracking until right. they realized that actually it would really work and then <laughs> it would serve a lot of people. Right. And uh, so th- you just never know where actually the energy, the breakthrough in energy is going to come through. The problem is that when the government massively invests in an area, then it, it tends to lock capital in that area, meaning that other area that could be profitable or that could uh, actually innovation that could happen in other area mm-hmm. just may not happen. So the opportunity cost is just really big. Yeah. And, and like you said, it, it sucks capital from other areas and, uh, you know, it takes away the incentive for, for entrepreneurs and innovators to go out in the garage and see what they can create. Yeah. Look, look at what happened with ethanol. Mm-hmm. All these ethanol, um, you know, uh, tax breaks and, and incentives. Uh, uh, and then you add to this, you add the, um, you add the, um, the mandates and all of that stuff. Mm-hmm. Well, farmers stop growing crops. They, right. they put all their resources in, in that only profitable because propped up by the government business. Right. And, and, and it's independently of the merits. Of, of 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 the thing that's being subsidized and but it locks in capital and that has a gigantic opportunity cost yeah there's a huge huge ripple effect through the the whole economy we're speaking with veronique de Roger. she's a senior research fellow at the mercatus center over at george mason university avid blogger she's on national review online as as well as other places veronique uh, honestly, I could talk to you all night. I really appreciate uh, your time uh, away you from your family here. tonight. And uh, I hope we can call you again. And there's about Absolutely. 10 other subjects I had that we just didn't have time to get to. So uh, Absolutely. whenever you want. I appreciate it. Uh, thanks again for joining us and uh, be well. Veronique Dirigier from Thank Mercatus you, Center. Thank you. I appreciate it. Gary Raspin, an economy of one.
Now, back to An Economy of One with Gary Rathbun. We are back. We were speaking with Veronique DeRouger. I love saying that name. That's why I keep repeating it. She's a senior research fellow at the Mercatus Center at George Mason University. Uh, really sharp lady. Enjoy talking to her. Well, you know, in our final segment, I got a few things that uh, were interesting uh, this week. Uh, it came out this week uh, out of the Washington Post. Give them attribution. Uh, Attorney General Eric Holder announced um, some new curbs on government's use of civil asset forfeiture. Remember, we've talked about this. We even talked to John Whitehead, uh, head of the Rutherford Institute and author of the book, A Government of Wolves, uh, talking about police forces, IRS, uh, government agencies, state government agencies, confiscating people's assets without warrants or indictments. We have seen several businesses that are cash businesses or have a lot of cash uh, transactions going to the bank several times a week, sometimes several times a day, making cash deposits. And the IRS looks at that as what they call a structured deposit. In other words, even though it's a legitimate business, legitimate transactions, you're obviously a drug dealer if you're putting cash in the bank several times a week, especially if it's under $10,000. Now, we've talked about that several times. Policemen, you know, making routine car stops, um, searching cars, finding ten, fifteen, twenty thousand dollars $20,000, confiscating it, no warrant, no indictment. Obviously, you're a drug dealer if you got that much cash. You're up to something no good. And they just keep it. And there are several states in the union where the departments that confiscate those assets are are allowed to use the money for their depo- uh, departments. So this gives them an incentive to confiscate more stuff. Over the last several years, they've confiscated $2.5 billion in cash nationwide from almost 62,000 people all without warrants or indictments. Well, finally, our voices are starting to be heard a little bit. A month or so ago, New Mexico passed laws uh, against civil asset forfeitures. Florida this week, those of you listeners down in Florida, um, just passed some laws uh, on civil asset forfeiture. I'll talk about those in a second. But Eric Holder is coming out and saying that federal authorities will only seize bank accounts when serious illegal transactions have been documented. Now, he is is uh, prohibiting state and local departments from confiscating assets from individuals without proper warrants or criminal charges unless federal authorities were directly involved in the case. Now, this is a good step in a good direction. It is not a final step because even though Eric Holder did this, he still retained pretty much the same power for federal agencies and agents. So we still got a ways to go. We can't let go 
We can't stop. But it's good to see the outrage being heard in Washington. This is absolutely against the Constitution. Absolutely against illegal forfeiture of your assets. Now, this still leaves some discretion to the federal authorities, but it's a good move in the right direction. Let's keep up the good work. Now, Florida, Florida is taking a lead on civil asset forfeiture reform, but theirs is a little bit different. Their whole piece of legislation, sponsored by uh, uh, State Senator Jeff Brandes, a Republican in the Tampa area, the, the, the problem I have with Florida's reform is it doesn't prevent the police departments or the agencies from confiscating the assets. It prevents them from um, being able to use the assets for the department's use. There's been several stories around the country where, you know, police departments have used the money for their own personal you know, the police chief's security system in his house and buying cars and that kind of stuff. Um, But the Florida law, from what I have read, does not go far enough in preventing it from happening. What What they're trying to do is take away the incentive for the individual departments to use it for their own own budget uh, needs. So the Florida law uh, enforces agencies to be part of a federal program known as equitable sharing. So whatever they confiscate, federal government gets part of it, different agencies get part of it. It can't be used by the individual police force or agency that confiscated it. Now, Heritage Foundation is having a legislative briefing next week in Tallahassee. So uh, for our listeners down there in Florida and uh, southern Georgia, uh, look that up on the Heritage website and uh, show up at that briefing. I think it'll be good to uh, get that information from the Heritage Foundation and and, uh, see what their thoughts are. Now, you remember a week or so ago, I talked about the EPA spending $15,000 to commission some university to study the showering habits of people and develop techniques and methodologies to help them change their behavior on how they shower and the length of the shower. And I kind of talked about that in jest. It was one of those things, 15 grand, how much can they do? Not a big deal. Well, it seems (laughs) that in a very short period of time, uh, the governor of California, Governor Jerry Brown, uh, signed an executive order because it's an emergency. And he's going to fine Californians for taking long showers. That's up to $500 a day. I don't know how long these people take showers in that state, but... Uh, They're going to start monitoring, the water department is going to start monitoring water usage. And uh, 
they may even cut you off out there. If you're using too much water, they may just shut the valve off and you got nothing. Governor Brown's goal is to reduce water usage in the state by 25%. Now, what's interesting is people have said that due to um, California's environmental laws, that that's what's caused some of the drought. And on the surface, that sounds a little silly. But you start digging into it, it becomes a lot less silly. A lot of their water problems could be substantially eased if the leadership did what they said they should have done, uh, were going to do in the past. 40% of the state's water drains into the Pacific Ocean as runoff. Now, they have passed bills. They have issued bonds. They have passed laws to prevent this excess drainage into the Pacific Ocean. But yet the money was used for other things, pet projects, um, crony stuff. I mean, if they would have done what they said they were going to do with the money they they uh, took in taxes, with the bonds they issued, they wouldn't be having this problem at all. It's not so much a water shortage as much as recapturing and storing the water that they have. If they would have simply put into place some of the storage units, they would have plenty of water. But they didn't. And now it's a crisis. And as usual, most politicians won't let a crisis go to waste. So what they're doing is passing bills, passing laws, penalizing citizens. It won't be long before you hear, you know, somebody got their water shut off because they watered their grass on the wrong day or they took a shower too long. Won't be long before you hear that. And uh, it's just going to get dumber and dumber and dumber out there. But this didn't have to happen if they would have done what they said they were going to do over the years. But progressives and liberals have been in control of that state essentially since 1970. And uh, they, they have not, not done what they, what they needed to do to prevent a crisis like this. So, uh, came true rather quick, monitoring showers. I was surprised. I want you to have a great day. Be an individual. Be self-reliant. Be an economy of one. I'm Gary Rathman. We'll see you next time. This is our country. The views expressed on this program do not necessarily reflect the views of this station. Listeners should consult their own financial advisors or conduct their own due diligence before making any financial decisions. Private Wealth Consultants is an SEC-registered investment advisor.